in this chapter, but in order to have something of the entire context, let's read verses 20 through 30 of Matthew chapter 11. Hear the word of the true and living God. Then he, speaking of our Lord Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At, this time, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon the ministry of this is holy and infallible word. Let us pray. O Holy Father, we bow before you, indeed in the consciousness that left to ourselves, we, we can neither read nor, nor mark your word aright. And we think, Father, of other passages of Holy Scripture, particularly that terrible indictment upon the religious leaders of our Lord's day, to whom he spoke, saying, You search the scriptures, but are unwilling to come to me, that you might have life. And then in this very passage, as the Lord Jesus speaks these woes upon these cities, before whom most of his mighty works had been performed, yet they did not repent, O oh Lord, we too tremble at the thought that we can take your word, the scriptures, in our hands. We can engrave them on our memory, even make them the very object of our diligent study and industry, and yet miss the very message contained therein. Lord, send your spirit upon us all that we may read and mark 
your word aright. Come, Holy Spirit, author of this blessed book, subdue, I pray, the feeble faculties of your servant. Command the attention of these, your people, these precious souls gathered in this place tonight, and be our teacher in this hour. We ask for the good of our souls and for the glory of our Savior, in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. Now, last time we began to look at something of the context of this passage, and I think it's important for us to consider what we saw last time is the setting of our Lord's words here, namely his rejoicing that the Father withholds his revelation from the wise and the understanding of the world's recognition and that he sovereignly reveals himself to babes. And it shows that in this very passage that where he had performed what Scripture says were most of his mighty works, the people in those cities failed to repent in the light that our Lord had given them. And our Lord goes on to insist that had commensurate light been given to those ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon and of Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, and it would have been repentance that would have remained even to the very hour in which our Lord was ministering. And so in the face of great unbelief and rejection and hardness of heart, our Lord, you'll notice, finds great comfort in this doctrine that is one of the pillars of our faith, that of divine sovereignty. And he thanks God that in his good pleasure he has hid this from the wise and the understanding and therefore revealed it to babes. And it's noteworthy, as I indicated last time, that immediately following the profound and beautiful statement that the ultimate issue in the rejection or reception of truth lies bound up in the sovereignty of God. Nonetheless, our Lord in no way makes this a barrier to the free offer of the gospel. In fact, he makes it the very platform upon which he extends this tender invitation to sin-weary sinners. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then secondly, we consider those who are the subjects of this invitation. Who are these who are heavy laden, or who labor and are heavy laden? And we looked at four different categories. Those who, are, who labor and are heavy laden under the guilt of sin number one. Secondly, under the bondage of sin, those who labor and are heavy laden, wandering in the darkness and confusion of sin. And then last of all, those who, la who labor and are heavy laden beneath ritualism or dead formalism of religion. And many commentators think that is the particular emphasis that our Lord is addressing in this passage. Well then I want us to notice tonight. In particular. The gracious invitation itself. And you'll notice with me. The sweetness 
of this invitation that the Lord gives in verse 28. It is bound up in these words, come to me. And the most important thing about this invitation is not the word come, but the word me. For you see, the summons that our Lord gives here means nothing if we divorce it from the person who gives the summons. And the meaning of these words, our confidence in their fulfillment is dependent upon the greatness of the person who extends the invitation. And who is it who makes such claims here? That in him, the problem of guilt can be resolved. The power of bondage can be broken. The chaos of darkness and confusion can be taken away and that the emptiness of formal man-made religiosity can be filled with substance and satisfaction which answers to the need of one's soul. That's quite a claim. Who makes such claims? That's the secret. We must never divorce the gracious words from the person who gives them. And as we think of the sweetness of this invitation that our Lord gives here, consider in the first place, who is the me who gives the invitation? Now, he's told us in the preceding verse, you'll notice, if you'll keep your Bibles open, in verse 27, that he is no one less than God incarnate. Look at his claim. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. What a claim he makes in those verses. He says, My person is such that no one can fully comprehend who I am but the Father himself. It requires God to comprehend God. Can you imagine an angel saying, no one knows me fully but another angel? Why, the God who made angels knows angels fully and completely because he made them, he created them. There's a... There's not a thing that God doesn't know about angels because he made them. But the Lord Jesus says, no one knows the Son but the Father. Why? Because great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3 Verse 16, and in the mystery of the true deity and true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ fused in one person, we just stand before the wonder of his glory and we fall down before him and we worship him and we say, God, this mystery, it is beyond me. Faith lays hold of it. But who can really comprehend God and man joined in one person forever? No one knows the Son but the Father. These words of invitation, they come from God incarnate. But in the second place, you'll notice, they come from the one who is the appointed mediator between God and man. Notice his words. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. 
And I would submit to you that the very best commentary on this verse is found in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, where our Lord makes it clear that in this giving of authority unto Him, it is for the performance of His role as mediator. Listen to His words in John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son also may glorify You, as You have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as You have given Him. Who speaks these words, come to me? God incarnate. And God incarnate as the appointed mediator between God and man. The only way to God is Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so when we look at these words, come to me. We must not put them in the context of, well, I've tried this, and I've tried that, and I'll try Jesus, and if Jesus doesn't work, I'll try something else. No, no. He who speaks them says, all things, all things are delivered into my hands. I am the only mediator. No one comes to the Father but by me. Thirdly. He speaks these words, come to me, as the exclusive revealer of God. Notice later on in verse 27. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. He knows the Father perfectly. And he to whomsoever or whomever the Son wills to reveal him. Men can know God partially. We, you and I, see through a mirror, a glass darkly, vaguely, dimly. But bless God, we may see it by the revelation of the Son. But He's the only one who reveals God. No one can know the Father except the person to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And it's only as he exercises his office as the sovereign mediator revealing the Father that any man can know God. That's why Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the whole idea that we can incorporate then the best of Jesus with the best of Mohammed and the best of this and that, and of all the other religions in the world, and come up with some kind of religious utopia is completely absurd. You have Christ and all the exclusiveness of his claims, or you'll not have him at all. John 1 and verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has literally exegeted Him in the flesh. Now when you put the words of this invitation in that context, Do you see then the difference in the weight and power with which it comes to us? 
What is this summons, this invitation? Come to me. Who is it that speaks these words? God incarnate. The only appointed mediator between God and man. The only revealer of God. Now what does he say? What is the substance then of this gracious invitation? Here it is. Come to me. What does the word come mean? Have you ever thought about that? When you read these words, what does it mean, come to me? Well, that word come, it is a synonym for the word faith. It is a synonym for the word believe, trust, commit. It's used interchangeably in a verse like John chapter 6 and verse 35, letting Scripture be its own infallible interpreter. Notice the meaning of the word, John 6, 35. And, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What is it to believe? It is to come. What is it to come? It is to believe. So what does our Lord do? He calls upon all who labor and are heavy laden to believe on Him, to come to Him, to trust in Him, to let the weight of their need be cast upon this unique God-man, the only mediator between God and men, the only revealer of God. And why does He invite us to Himself and to Himself alone? Well, it is for the simple reason that He alone, dear people, is suited to meet the needs which calls us to labor and to be heavy laden. Are you tolling? Are you heavy laden beneath the guilt of sin? Jesus says, come to me. Why? Because he's the appointed lamb of God to bear away on his shoulders the sin of the world. It was he who went to the cross and there exposed himself to the wrath of his father until the billows of that wrath funneled down upon his holy head and caused him to cry out in dereliction and desertion and abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why doesn't he invite us to some church? to some philosophy, or to some way of life. I'll tell you why. Because no philosophy, no way of life hung in agony and blood upon the cross. He poured out his soul unto death, Isaiah tells us. And he says, come to me. I alone have borne the guilt of sin. Are you heavy laden? You feel as though you told beneath the lash of a nagging conscience. Jesus says, there is peace, in re- peace and rest in my wounds and in my suffering. Come to me. Or is it that you labor and are heavy laden 
under the bondage of sin. He says, come to me because I alone, as the ascended Lord, I send forth the Spirit in the plentitude of power and grace who can break the bonds of sin. Acts 5 and verse 31 reads, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1 verse 22 declares to us that Christ, having been exalted, that He, God, has put all things under His feet. He is able, dear people, to break the power of canceled sin in the language of the hymn to set the prisoner free. Is it that you're heavy laden, perhaps, in the hopelessness and the confusion and darkness of sin? Why does he say, come to me? Because he says, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me shall not walk in darkness, but have, he says, the light of life. In Jesus Christ, life's ultimate answers are to be found and only in him. Moreover, he is the fulfillment of all of the types and shadows of all the Old Testament sacrificial system. We need no great rubric of ceremony today. For the end of all of those ceremonies have found their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is both priest and offering. For in the giving up of himself... Upon the cross, he became at one and the same time both offerer and offering for the sins of sinners. He is the true bread come down from heaven. He is the light of the true tabernacle. Scripture says, He has made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He says, come to me. Why? Because in Christ, in Christ alone, our needs, yours, mine, can be met. Now, he not only delineates those whom he summons and extends this gracious offer or invitation, but in the third place, I want you to notice the promise or the pledge of this summon. Whom does he summon? All those who labor. And are heavy laden. What does he say? Come to me. Now notice the promise, the pledge that he annexes to this command. And I will give you rest. Or as we have it in verse 29. You will find rest for your souls. What does this word rest mean? Well it means no more hopeless tolling under the crushing load of guilt and bondage. It means no more despair. Release from all the things that bind us. Release from those things that crush us. That is what rest means. Now notice the certainty of the promise. Come and I will give you rest. God incarnate, remember, is speaking. Of God, Scripture says, it is impossible for God to lie. 
And this is why it's so important that we pause to consider who speaks these words to us. For if I'm not certain that these words are infallible and uttered with unerring certainty, how do I know but maybe if I come, they will not be fulfilled? How can I know that which causes my labor and makes me heavy laden will be relieved if I come to him? Because the promise is certain. He who speaks them is God and God cannot lie. If you do not know soul rest this evening, it's because, very simply put, you have not come to Christ. Because if you come to Christ, you'll know you'll find rest for your soul. If you're held in the grip and bondage of sin, not those terrible outcroppings of remaining sin that exist in believers, but the cruel tyranny of reigning sin. You're its willing servant and slave, you see. There's only one reason if you're there. It's because you have not yet come to Christ. For he says, those who come will find rest. So the promise is certain, but the promise is also, you'll notice, an exclusive promise. Come to me and you will find rest. The implication being that rest is to be found nowhere else for all eternity. That's why the whole concept of this gracious invitation is charged with the spirit of authority and command. Come to me or you perish. And then you'll notice our Lord goes on to say, and I can only be suggestive here in our study of this, but the invitation does not end with verse 28. It's as those who, as if those who heard it said, But Lord, what will it mean? What are the implications of coming to you for rest? Our Lord then, in the fourth place, you'll notice, he enlarges here upon the nature of true faith. Notice verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is faith just a matter of trying Jesus, as I suggested before? Maybe you've tried drugs, you've tried liquor, and you've tried things and pleasure. Now try Jesus. No, no. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor. And are heavy laden. But listen, he says, I invite you into a relationship of absolute unreserved commitment to myself and to my truth. Take my yoke upon you. That is other submission to his person. Learn from me. That is other submission to his truth. Then and only then will you find rest for your soul. You see, we don't dicker with Christ, and we don't bargain with Christ. We don't stand, as it were, on the outside to strike a bargain with him. Perhaps some of you have come from backgrounds where bartering and dickering on prices was just a part of your cultural heritage. 
But there is no room with Christ for any kind of bargaining. His terms are fixed. You know, if you're looking for a piece of real estate and you see a listing for like $210,000 fixed, what are they saying by that price? They're saying there's no dickering. There's no haggling. The price is fixed. The conditions are settled. You meet them or no house for you. The Son of God says, here are the conditions firm. No dickering. Come to me. Gracious invitation. But what are the implications of coming to Christ? Here they are. Unreserved commitment to his person. Take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? Well, a yoke is an instrument, you see, that binds two animals together that they might plow in the same furrow and move in the same direction together. There is unity of will, of effort, of labor, and of purpose. Christ says, come for rest. And what is that rest? It's not freedom from all restraint and obligation, no. It's freedom from the tyranny of sin. And it is the liberty of becoming a bondslave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true freedom. Not freedom to do what I want to do, but freedom to do what I ought to do. And freedom to be what I ought to free, what I ought to be. Freedom for a bird, for instance, is the ability to do what? Freedom for a bird is to have the ability to do what a bird was made to do, fly through the air. Freedom for a man is freedom to be what I was made to be. And what is that? A servant of Jesus Christ doing the will of God from the heart. That's what I was made for. And until the will of God is precious to me and becomes my very delight... I'm not yet what I was made to be. And so he says, come, take my yoke, other resignation to my person, that's rest. And then absolute submission to his truth, learn from me. And then, unless someone should say, ah, Lord, but, you know, I've been burdened and heavy laden with my sin. And now you call me to another burden. Uh Uh-uh. He has these words, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord just clears away in those two expressions every last excuse as he holds his gracious invitation before us. So what does coming to Christ involve? It means coming to him as our rest coming to him as our ruler, coming to him as our teacher. And if you, if you change the words, what do you have then? You have coming to him as our rest, that is, our great high priest, the priest who bore our sins upon the cross, who succors us in our need. He's our priest. Coming to him as our ruler, that's our king. And coming to him as our teacher, that's our prophet. And here in this text, 
the Lord sets himself before us as the only mediator appointed by the Father, the only revealer of God who does his work of mediation and revelation as prophet, priest, and king and graciously invites burdened sinners to cast themselves upon him with this assurance that they shall find rest for their souls. May God grant that if there are any among us this evening who are burdened, I plead with you to come to Christ. To come to Christ. And again, what does that mean, to come to Christ? It means to believe on him. Throw the weight of your sin-sick soul upon the mercy of the Savior. Here, Lord, I come on your terms. I don't come to dicker or bargain. And I long for relief from this crushing weight of sin upon me. From the terrible cords of bondage that bind me. And from the hopeless confusion and emptiness that is mine. Lord Jesus, you have promised rest. This is your pledge. I venture on it. Or in the language of that great hymn in our hymnal, which I so often love to quote, Venture on him, venture holy, let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. And dear child of God, in closing tonight, if you have ventured upon him from, for rest, I would simply remind you there is no other place to go for continued rest. And when there is that nagging of conscience and you know that you failed, where do you go? Don't simply try to pacify it by upgrading your prayer life or increasing your Bible reading and study, though those are good things. First, go to Christ. Run to Jesus. Don't ever make the error of confusing the means of grace for the fountain of grace. Go to Christ. Go to Him directly. And when you have a wounded or a pricked conscience, the only place of refuge, even for a child of God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when there is confusion and darkness, the only place of instruction is to be found in Christ. And so it's important for us to understand we do not come to the Lord Jesus once and for all. Yes, there is a time when we come to Him in our initial coming, but I love to emphasize this that what the Lord Jesus is in our initial coming to Him, He ever remains in the ongoing reality of our Christian experience. So that we go to him continually and cast ourselves upon him. And we find him always true to his promise. We find rest for our souls. May God grant that all of us may come. Whether as a child of God in a state or our area of bondage or in a particular area of need or heaviness. He's a gracious, suckering high priest. And if you're outside of Christ as a young person or even as an adult, 
come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that in coming to him, you may indeed find rest for your soul. Let us pray.